Throughout the summer, we are going to be looking through the wisdom books of the scriptures to find guidance to have insight through hindsight. Insight through hindsight. Have you noticed that things look a little bit more clear when you look back on them, right? You've noticed that hindsight is 2020. Wouldn't it be nice to have a little bit of that in advance, right? You can when you benefit from the hindsight of other people who have lived forwards and understood backwards. Now, why do we need insight from hindsight? Obviously, it's, it's nice to have people who are further down the path calling back to us that there's a stump or a hole. Watch out for it. But every age has blind spots. So it's not just a practical tool. Wisdom isn't just a practical tool. Every age has blind spots. Uh, what everybody happens to believe right now, just because we happen to be walking around, we have opinions and we get to write the newspapers, that's called conventional wisdom. We need unconventional wisdom, not just the spirit of the age, but the spirit of the ages. You've heard the story of the frog and the kettle. You put a, a frog in a cool kettle and you turn up the heat, it'll slowly boil to death. You, you put it into a hot kettle, it'll jump right out. Well, when you live long enough in your age, it's like that heat just slowly getting turned up. And every age turns up the heat and cooks some aspect of common sense. You know, in the Victorian period, it's funny, you, you, in, in the Victorians were not allowed to, to say the word legs. Like, even a table didn't have legs, right? Victorians, are you picking up on this, what I'm talking about? It was too suggestive, all right? You didn't say that a table had legs, all right? Now, the kids in our nursery right now, they're gonna, they're gonna grow up one day and they're gonna look around and see what kind of things like that are, are going on? What, how we messed things up. We inherit those messes. We inherit them. We didn't make them all, right? And they're going to inherit them. And they're not going to have it all right either. But we're, every age, we're, we're overcompensating for the last, right? And so, you know, you, you've got about five years once you inherit that mess to fix it. And then you know what happens after that? It becomes yours. It's your mess, right? <laughs> you got five years and then it becomes your own. We're not going to fix it all, but what we're going to do, what we end up doing is weaving down the road of life, overcompensating. Over Sometimes we try to look ahead, right? We try to get, be prescient. We try to be five minutes ahead. We try to solve blind spots of our age by looking ahead. In fact, we're usually about a thousand or thousands of years behind the age. C.S. Lewis said, anything that is not eternal is eternally out of date. So the children in our nursery are going to come up and they're going to say, what were you thinking about the common sense that we cooked to death in our age? The pendulum will swing back, in other words. Those things you're worried about, those excesses, the pendulum will swing back. So, Let's take a look at the wisdom of the ages. Let's, let's look at wisdom of the ages to see what we're not seeing. That's unconventional wisdom. That's insight from hindsight. So each of these wisdom books tells its own unique story.
but they all put the meaning of life to the test to give us insight from hindsight. So Ecclesiastes says, you can gain it all. Not quite yet, not quite yet. You can gain it all and lose the meaning behind it all. That's Ecclesiastes. Job says, you can lose it all and find the meaning behind it all. Song of Solomon says, you can find what's loving and worth loving above all. And Proverbs is really the axioms of those lessons, of what's meaningful in life. Today we're going to begin by looking at the book of Ecclesiastes. Let me explain it with one simple illustration. Have you ever been sitting at a desk or looked at a wall and you've seen graffiti there and it says, Jesus is the answer? Have you ever seen this? Jesus is the answer? And then you look down underneath it and some smart aleck wrote, what was the question? Right? Have you seen that? Well, Ecclesiastes is the question. The rest of the Bible answers the question. Ecclesiastes asks the question. How do we find the good life? Ecclesiastes just means teacher or preacher. It's Solomon's pen name as he asks, as he pokes at life. And the way he asks the question is, how do you find the good life under the sun? And under the sun is code for, how do you find the good life without faith, without God? How do you find the good life without God? Now, that's why some people find this book so disturbing, because they don't know that that's what he's doing. He's trying to prove a negative. It's, it's a little like uh, that documentary years ago called Supersize Me, where the guy, uh, Morgan Spurlock, he, uh, he tests, he tries to prove a negative about nutrition by eating only fast food, breakfast, lunch, and dinner for a month. You remember this? All right. And he just, he becomes depressed. He gains all kinds of weight. He proves the negative that life without nourishing food is not good. And this is what, this is what Solomon is up to. You see, that's what he's up to with this book. What if he really had the resources to test life to the full under the sun, to test it out, to see what's meaningful under the sun? What if you had all the wealth and power to, to, to test out what makes life worth living? That's, that's what he's doing. And he discovered you can gain the whole world and lose its meaning to find all your stuff meaningless. From the Word of God, Ecclesiastes chapters 1 through 3, I'm going to read the whole thing. I'm going to give you a sampling of the flow, to give you the flow of the opening argument. Hear God's Word this morning. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. So I hated my toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors 
under the sun. We're counting on you back there. I, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. This is where he pivots. He's making a test of pleasure. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched my heart to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. By the way, let me just pause there and say, what's he saying there? He's saying, I have a perspective on life that is more than above the sun, but I'm testing out life under the sun. And he says, and how to lay hold of folly that I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in man's heart so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, as we yield our will to your word, create in us clean hearts, O God. In Jesus' name, amen. I've mentioned this book before. It's called Gung Ho. It tells the story of a factory that's about to shut down. And there's a guy who's sent there to shut it down. And he discovers that the finishing plant of this factory is the best in the country, the best in our whole industry. He realizes that they're operating by three principles. The spirit of the squirrel, the way of the beaver, and the gift of the goose. They're named after Native American uh, practices and principles of that region. I've talked about the gift of the goose before, but I've not talked to you about the spirit of the squirrel. What is the spirit of the squirrel? The spirit of the squirrel is, is really worthwhile work. It's, it's seeing the purpose above and beyond the specific details of the work that you're doing, the tasks that you're doing. If you make a widget, if you make some little part for something over and over and over again, the quality may break down, the meaning in it may break down after a while. But if you know that the part and your ability to make it well is the pivotal difference in a braking system on a school bus, now you have the spirit of the squirrel. Now you know that your tasks are meaningful. You have purpose that motivates your work. Sunday is our day of purpose, is it not? Sunday is our day of purpose. It's to reconnect to our purpose. But Sunday is so disconnected from Monday, isn't it? I don't have to tell you that. Sunday is so disconnected from Monday. The spirit of squirrel is missing from our week. Monday through Friday needs the spirit of squirrel so that Sunday purpose can be lived out Monday through Friday, Monday through Saturday. So how do we connect Sunday purpose 
with Monday work? How do we do it? Answer, let's examine the broken world without it. That's what he's doing. That's what I told you that, that he's doing. That's what he's up to. How do we connect Sunday purpose to Monday, Monday work? By examining a broken world or our responses to a broken world without it. And what, what he's saying, what Ecclesiastes is doing, he's experimenting. He's saying there, there, there are two main ways that people try to deal with the brokenness of the world under the sun. There are two main ways that we try to deal with it. Without the spirit of the squirrel. Fight and flight. We're going to look at fight and flight. That represents pessimism and optimism. First fight. Some people try to fight in a broken world or they fight the broken world itself with pessimism. That's how they deal with it. That's how they deal with it. They're, they're lowering their expectations. That's, that's what it means to be a pessimist. You're just lowering your expectations. It, it's kind of like to say, well, if my, if my expectations of a broken world are low enough, then it cannot hurt me. It cannot disappoint me as, not, as much. Solomon is saying in verse 1, he's saying, vanity of vanities. He's saying the ultimate vanity is that there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new. That life is cyclical. There's nothing new under the sun. It's pessimistic. He's lowering his expectations. He's saying there's nothing new. The cyclic nature of life is futile. It seems futile. It's like saying the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? You've heard that. And you've experienced it too. Now, you, tell me you haven't done this. You've, you've turned off the news during vacation, maybe for a couple of weeks, and you've kind of had a little news detox. And you say, ooh, that feels good. But then you turn it back on and you say, you know what? We picked up right where we left off. <laughs> There's nothing changed. There's nothing different. It's the same arguments. It's the same personalities. It's the same problems. It's the same sticking points. I know, you thought I meant talking points. No, the same sticking points. Nothing new under the sun. You've had that experience. So some people fight in a broken world or fight the broken world itself by lowering their expectations so that they won't be disappointed by it. Now, this works in golf. I can tell you, this does work in golf to lower your expectations, you know? I mean, golf is called golf because all the four other four-letter words were taken, right? So, but in the rest of life, we often use Murphy's Law. Whatever can go wrong will go wrong. That's Murphy's Law. And when things are going well, watch out, right? That's Murphy's Law. This is lowering our expectations. This is the kind of pessimism that, that people use to fight in a broken world. And sometimes that's just a lighthearted thing. You know, we, we say, you know, I kept it from raining by bringing my umbrella, right? Um, we, we just have fun with that kind of thing. But there's something deeper going on. Let's take a look. Real pessimism about the future is a form of control over fear and disappointment. Now, it seems like I said the same thing, but here's the difference. It's your form of control in a broken world, in place of hope, in place of expectations. Uh, it's a way of being a master of your own fate. 
to say, well, I might trust God in general, but I'm going to hold on to the corner of life. I'm going to fight my expectations, even that I might have of God, even the expectation that, that God says I should have of him. That means you're trusting in your own risk management more than you're trusting God. And Solomon's pointing out that you may lower your expectations, but you cannot completely silence your bigger hopes. And pessimism, lower expectations, risk management cannot touch that. We are by nature hopeful creatures. We just can't help it. We can't help even having expectations when playing golf, right? We just can't help it. But some people do fight in a broken world or fight the broken world itself through pessimism, through lowering expectations. It's just cyclical. And you know what? I should just sort of, I should just sort of keep God in a box on Sunday so that I don't have too many disappointments Monday through Saturday. But see, other people take flight from a broken world. They don't fight the broken world. They take flight from it with optimism. You say, optimism? Well, that sounds really like a positive thing. Hmm? Well, not so much when it's really about denial and avoidance. That's optimism under the sun. Denial. Denial and avoidance. And what, what Solomon is doing here is he's, he's taking the toils of life. He's saying, these are the ways, there are five toils, and these are the ways that we occupy ourselves from the questions that distract us and the deeper hungers that this world does not seem to satisfy. And so that's not hope. Optimism is not hope. It's more like denial or even medication. Again, Solomon calls them toils. Uh, Ecclesiastes 2.1, he says, Come now, let me test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. And he launches into these five different toils, pleasure being one of them. Uh, these are things that we invest in to distract ourselves from the bigger questions, right? Head, heart, stomach, wallet, and religion. Those are the five. Let me just go through them real quickly. Head, you, you, you can fill your head with all kinds of knowledge, but it just brings greater responsibility, a greater sense of heaviness. Heart, you can pursue your conscience, your social conscience. And sometimes people just don't behave. You know, people are trying to help. <laughs> you get disappointed by that. Stomach, you know, it's a temporary fix. Materialism, materialism is uh, this, this hunger that we feed that always needs just a little bit more. And religion, you say, well, religion, how's that a toil? How's that denial and optimism? Well, let's take a look at that. Let's drill down on that a little deeper. I think, uh, I think people are very productive and very anxious uh, because these toils only run three-quarters of the full mile of meaning, right? You and I need the full mile of meaning, and these toils only run three-quarters of it, including religion. They never completely silence the big questions. Monday's toils cannot replace Sunday's purpose. When you say, well, I thought you were just talking about Sunday's pur purpose with religion. No, I'm not talking about, that's not what I'm talking about with religion. Religion can be a toil, just a way to make you feel better, a toil. 
Anxiety is up today because people have the toil of religion, but not genuine faith. God is there just to make us feel better. Is that right? That kind of religion never really puts God at the center. He's just your co-pilot. And I think some of our theology of today really keeps God a little bit in this secondary position. Author Pete Scazzaro in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, says that sometimes we even use God to run from God. Not just a co-pilot, but using spirituality to avoid dealing, really dealing with reality. Now, I'm going to give you an example of that. Sometimes we focus on religious fluff while ignoring the basics of faith, like spiritualizing away conflict by just praying about it rather than actually having the conversation, actually dealing with it. Yes, pray about your conflict. Absolutely. But don't avoid. Don't pretend that you did it because you did something spiritual or religious. Jesus was very blunt about this. He says, if you're in, in Matthew chapter 5, he says, if, if you're offering your gift at the altar and then you remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. What's he saying? Don't play games with God. Don't play games with yourself. Don't pretend with your spirituality. Don't use your faith as a way just to feel better, to smooth things over, to avoid dealing with the things that that the basics of faith are calling us to deal with. You know, committed Christians, let's put a, a little finer point on this. Committed Christians want worship to be personal and not just formal. And, you know, the mainline church was just full of formality, right? And we're introducing some formalities, some formal liturgies into this place. I think it's a beautiful thing to contrast the personal nature of heartfelt worship with some of these more formal elements. It doesn't mean we're getting more distant from God. or So... I understand that the heart wants personal worship, but having a personal religious experience does not do the work of applying those things that we already know, of applying ourselves to letting God be at the center of our life rather than our helper. A Bible study is good, but when you just keep learning and learning and learning and never applying, and never internalizing it, and never dealing with those key relationships, and never dealing with yourself. You're using God to run from God. You're pretending. Uh, I keep saying you. We all do this. I do this too, right? We all do this. You don't like it when I'm this honest. I mean, it's like, you know, I, I wouldn't either. It's like, okay, let's move on to the next point, okay? We got it. We got it. Sorry, we're not quite done yet. You see, we do use God to run from God. And you may not think that of it this way, that, that taking responsibility is that big a deal. But you know what? This week, when, when you take responsibility for some small thing that you did wrong or didn't do, or when you're in a difficult conversation or just a plain conversation, and you don't let it slip by that somebody, somebody gives you credit for something and you don't let it slip by and you say, you know what, that, actually that was this other person. That may be the most spiritual thing you've done all week. Apart from all your Bible study and apart from everything else, 
taking that little bit of responsibility to face reality. And all the angels are saying, yeah, (laughs) he did it. She did it. Just that one little step. And you're weak. It's a sign that faith is more than a toil and just moralism. It's a sign that Sunday purpose is beginning to connect to Monday's work. All the toils of optimism can't quench our deep thirst for God. Optimism is like lapping up a puddle when what's being offered to us is a deep, deep well. But we have to dig it. We have to keep digging it. So how do we dig that well? How do we dig that well? Not through fight, not through flight, but to take this this hope that we have, this living hope, and to look this broken world squarely in the face, to look at the brutal facts with unwavering hope that God truly is at the center and that he's not to be made a means to an end. So much of our experience is suggesting, suggesting, suggesting things. What's it suggesting? That everything around us is so much more than the sum of its parts. When you approach a great waterfall in the wild, have you all seen the, the, the reports coming out of Yosemite that there's just so much water? I, I saw this one picture of this waterfall, this incredible volume of water, incredible beauty pouring over these cataracts. When you see a waterfall in the wild, awe resonates with meaning. Sparks of light glint off of droplets of water. Fragrant air pushes past you. The cool mist on your face and the thunder in your chest all bring a strange comfort. It suggests something more than the sum of its parts. And now imagine that you come home and you see a strange machine that wasn't there before on the counter. You've come in, somebody's bought something. And this machine is, is shiny, has lots of bells and whistles and switches. You turn it on and something starts happening. There's steam, there's water going. And a friend asks you what this machine is for. And you say, well, you describe how well it draws the water and uh, the control that you have over you know, it coming out. Uh, and it's all very coordinated and the amazing lights on the thing, the switches that you can push, the buttons you can push. And you've said nothing about its meaning. But then, when you understand that this is a coffee maker, <laughs> now you know that there's a purpose behind it. All of those parts come together for something that is, has nothing to do with the parts. Are you seeing this, people? There's nothing to do. Making coffee is something that somebody made up, right? Or discovered. That's probably a better way of putting it. And now we've created a machine to make this thing that is totally independent of all these pieces and parts called making coffee. And it's a beautiful thing. You know that. Making coffee. It's just a beautiful thing, making coffee. I'm just going to pause on that beautiful thought. 
Waterfalls and coffee, people. That's what you get this morning. <laughs> Leslie Newbegin points out that the same can be said of the human body, the hand. The same can be said of the universe. Everything, everywhere is charged with the grandeur of God. The world is pregnant with meaning, just waiting to be born. Martin Luther paints a picture of, of, of work on Monday that has the full measure of the spirit of the squirrel behind it. Listen to this. He's talking about a young woman sweeping the floor. He says, this young woman who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God as much as the monk who prays. Not because she may sing a hymn as she sweeps, but because God loves clean floors. The Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty, not by putting little crosses on shoes, but by making good shoes because God is interested in good craftsmanship. I love the fact that Jesus was a carpenter. Can you see that the significance of your work tomorrow in the craftsmanship of the carpenter shop. Yeah, Jesus had the cross ahead. He had this pivotal thing to do in human life. But he took his time to make good chairs and tables along the way, along the way. Just like this woman, she faces her circumstances in light of eternity rather than trying to escape them with religion. Gung-ho, workers have the spirit of the squirrel. And that finishing plant, they're making great widgets. They see beyond the assembly line. How about you? Are you connecting Sunday to Monday? Or are you seeing faith as something that's just an optimistic escape? When you look at this table, you can see that Jesus didn't leave denial and optimism as an option for us. He puts the faith all the way into the elements of life, the bread and the cup. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to this table and we're reminded that of all the things in the universe that we might disconnect, it all comes together with you at the center. You as Lord over all things. And you, being all glorious and all powerful, you'd laid down your life. You came and took form as us. You died. You rose again. So the beginning of wisdom is not the heights, but it begins in humility. So Lord, as we come to this table and we're reminded again what you've done for us, Lord, would you meet us here? Would you bless this bread and cup and would you use them to strengthen us? and encourage us and reveal wisdom that begins in the life of your son. It's in Jesus' name, amen.